Baptist one. Good morning. Good morning. Josh, got me? Good morning. Test one. Everybody in the foyer, make your way in. Guys, if y'all will stand with us this morning as we present ourselves to the Lord. Before we pray, I want to continue to cultivate with you uh, this awareness when we come into God's house. If we believe that we meet with God, that will alter everything from our journey to the house, our posture in the house, our interaction with Him. If we believe that God is here, you know, we say, where two or three are gathered in His name, He's in the midst of us. Well, if, if He's in the midst of us, that changes everything about my actions and reactions. It opens up my heart of gratitude. It means that I, I have a humble heart and uh, wanting to learn and be taught of Him as well as to express my gratitude to Him. So I just want to reverence Him from the beginning of this service as we go into the short review of last week and then we do part two of our video series uh, on the crucified Christ. And today we'll be talking about the attributes of God in the second portion. So would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. It is that name and faith in that name alone that gives us access and an audience with you. I thank you for the opportunity, the freedom that has been given us to worship in this house and Lord, we want to approach you not just with songs, which is our common practice, but with a, a humility of heart that reverences you and, and um, esteems you appropriately. I'm grateful this morning for the forgiveness of my many sins. I'm grateful, Lord, that as far as the east is from the west, you have removed our transgressions from us. I'm grateful, Lord, that you choose not to remember my sins, our sins anymore because of Jesus Christ the Lord. Be blessed in this house that's named after the Christ, O oh Lord. Receive glory in this house in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated this morning. Welcome. Have to unmute my mic, sorry. Welcome this morning. Um, I hope this series has been good for you as we take a few moments and kind of recap last week. Um, I want to start by saying, I've, uh, just as I've talked to several people, I've noticed that you've felt the tension that this brings out. And it's intended. It's intended for us to wrestle through these ideas. It's intended for us to kind of search out what is true, what is real. And the other thing is, is you're hearing voices and you don't know which one to trust. Um, Every voice at first sounds very trusting, and they'll say things that at, at first you kind of are like, yeah, yeah, and then, well, I'm, I'm not sure. And You have these moments. Those are okay. Um, you're going to find out, it's going to get a little more clear as we get into this, who you can trust and who you can't trust, hopefully. Um, some of the things they'll say just get you. Let me, let me say this, especially for those, this is your first day here. In this documentary, there are two trains of thought with different expressions, but two trains of thoughts. 
thought. One is the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God, unchanging, perfect. And the other, that the Bible is, it's by their own words, diluted, polluted, distorted, where truth is relative, you create your own truth. So just because the statement is made on the documentary does not mean we're in agreement with it. We're showing you how it can be presented. Satan himself can appear as an angel of light. And so these theologians, quote, unquote, standing in error can deceive, uh, especially new believers. Our point and our goal is this. Imagine, if you will, in the natural realm, if you were teaching math to three-year-olds to 70-year-olds. Well, in the church at any given time, you have brand new believers. You have those that aren't saved, and you've got those that were raised in uh, incorrect doctrine. We want their, this frustration that he was talking about, this tension, if you will, this contradiction, the, the frustration with hearing something that doesn't sound quite right. We want you to do that in this house where there's a safety net instead of out there where the cunning, demonic anointing of those that oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ can back you in a corner because you may not have an answer you just give in to that which is error. So there should be a tension. And by the time this series is over, by God's grace, there's going to be no tension. It is our desire that every person, regardless of how long you've known Jesus Christ, you will be able to clearly articulate your faith and recognize any doctrine or gospel that contradicts the simplicity of our faith in the virgin birth, the death, the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Him for us. I Amen. have to stand, by the way. When I do <laughs> As you can tell, we're, we, we're starting to feel excited about this series um, from this panel here. I know. Starting to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you are too. Um, and in this, uh, you know, toward the end of the last week, they started to get into this gospel narrative. What is the gospel? Um, there's this one statement that kind of really started kicking out to me that one guy said. He said, if you could imagine a better gospel, then why not? And, and as I heard that, I said, what? well, I can't imagine a better gospel. Because what he's asking me to do is pit two ideas. One idea that I work for my gospel, my salvation or my freedom, or I purchase it at a high price, or that I have to live good enough or righteous. Like, what is the option? Either the option is I have to do it by some mechanism or God does it for me. And one of the, one of the authors in the false side said, you're not going to bait me this with, with the... He asked him simply, what is the gospel? Mm -hmm. He said, well, there's no way to know what that is. Well, yes, there is a way to know. I know <laughs> whom I've believed in. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel is everything that I need in this life and in the world to come. From forgiveness to healing to restoration to guidance to provision to protection, I find in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Amen. He's the gospel. That's right. And so I'll say this, and then I'm going to throw it back out on the table for you guys to go at some more. But he finishes that. The Mark's Gospels ends this way, that the time is fulfilled, Jesus said. Repent and believe the good news. And what is this good news? That I am the light of the world. 
that I am the bread of life. And this is Jesus speaking. He says that I am the good shepherd who lays down his life. Why? Why did he lay down his life? Why does he have to lay down his life? And it's a reference back to Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And my favorite statement in this whole video is this, I am the him. That Jesus would see that and say, I am the him. He is the gospel narrative. And to know what the gospel is is simple. All right, I'll back out. Otherwise, I can go for an hour. geek squad over here helping me out <laughs> so as we mature in our faith it becomes clear that the gospel it, it's the crux the pinnacle point is Jesus in his temporal expression as being coming forward as a man his birth to a virgin his life his ministry his death burial and resurrection this is the crux of the gospel. And as we mature, we will see that, as Alistair Begg in the documentary says, the gospel is Jesus. The Bible is the story of Jesus. The entire Bible is Jesus. And Wade expanded on this at the close of last week and did it very well. So I'm just going to touch on this here where in the New Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, Christ is revealed, Jesus. In the Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. We do not stand up here and say the Gospel is Jesus Christ died for my sins and that's it. That is a crux, a pinnacle point. But he who stepped out on nothing was God and spoke everything into existence. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And through the Word, everything you see has come into existence. They are inextricably linked, the Trinity, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when we isolate the Gospel to four chapters, four books out of the Bible— we are doing ourselves a disservice. We are setting ourselves up for deception. And we need to pray for discernment and maturity that the Holy Spirit will lead us into understanding. The closing of the last segment we watched, there is an author, Brian McLaren, who has, over the last 30, 35 years, developed a doctrine that is heretical. So he will say things in sound bites that may sound like Oh, maybe that's something I should look into. Well, one of the things he says is we can't go to Romans to define the gospel. We must define the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as Jesus says it. And so I took his advice, and I went to John 8. And I'm not cherry-picking scripture here. I want you to know that Jesus did not mince words. Jesus talked about hell just as much as any of the Old Testament prophets, and he was clear on it. He did not muddy the water for us. Uh, Jesus says in, in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisee said to him, you're bearing witnesses about yourself. The testimony is not true. Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. 
but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And Jesus is telling them with clarity that I am a righteous judge. I do not stand in testimony alone. The Father and myself, according to law, two witnesses make it true. I testify to you, my Father testifies to you. You know the truth and you have rejected it. He goes on and says, this is Jesus' words. You are from below and I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What did Wade just say? Jesus says, I am he. So unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. Now this is Jesus telling us what the gospel is, right? So just what I have been telling you from the beginning, I have much more to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. It continues in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Um, I'm going to skip ahead for the sake of time here for just a moment, but read yeah, you, all of got John like six 8. six pages right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they, they, they tried to defend themselves by saying, our father is Abraham. And Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would, not be doing the, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works that your father did. So now they're indignant. These are Pharisees. They, are, they have a legacy, a lineage of being Jewish law abiders and judges. They said, whoa, 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 we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. That's a strong statement. And that's what Jesus said to those that would contradict the gospel. So Matt, Brian McLaren damns himself by his own proclamation that we find the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and study the words of Christ because he has stood up a gospel that is contrary to the word of God and by his own admission, he is a child of Satan. I so don't let people that have been developing a theology for 15, 30 years confuse you with sound bites of this that has been tailored to trick you in by little adjustments on what you believe is truth. The, the underlying current, the demonic idea that we cannot know what the gospel is, if I even buy into a portion of that, then I'm gullible to that which it is not. That's right. Okay, we are so concerned with being politically correct because we see it all day, we hear it all day, we understand that we will be alienated and canceled and opposed and you, you can't say the wrong thing and we're so scared, like if I say, well that preacher's a heretic. And you can watch in the congregation people, like, you, you shouldn't say that. Jesus, Jesus told the Pharisees, they said, we be Abraham's seed. He said, your daddy's the devil. <laughs> now, I just submit to you that why would he say, your father is the devil. Now, he didn't say it angrily. I don't believe he said it 
in a, a, a sinful, prideful way. It was an issue of clarity because when it comes to the damning of people's souls, we are to be able to say with confidence, not esteeming ourselves better, but in the truth, he that preacheth another gospel, let him be accursed. No, he's not just, well, he got it wrong there. It, it, I'm not judging a man's heart when I judge his doctrine, when I judge what's coming out of his mouth. So I'm just, there's my past. If Jesus can say your daddy's the devil, I feel free to say that's a damnable doctrine. So that doesn't offend me. You know, we are to know. And for him to make a statement to get the gospel, you have to go to the gospels. The reason that can pass in a day and age like today is because many churches now, the children's church is in the adult church. That just sounds right. Well, yeah, you'd get a gospel from the gospels. Well, Jesus didn't call them the gospels. Jesus is the story of creation. He's found in the law. He's found in history. He's found in poetry. He's found in the major prophets. He's found in the minor prophets. He is the subject of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He is that which is preached from Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All of the major prophets and minor prophets in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, all of Paul's epistles. You can't just pull it out of Romans. Oh, yes, I can. And when I take the gospel from Romans, it will knit together seamlessly with the gospel in Genesis, with the sacrifices, with the, uh, the Paul's preaching. So I can take the gospel from Romans, but it's not exclusive. So we have to be able to study to show ourselves approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that some of these guys on the incorrect side of the gospel are way smarter than I am. And they are wrong. See, that doesn't mean that I think I'm better. It's just like if someone got up and explained to us, you know, he's a physicist and he works for NASA and he's got all these degrees and he says that gravity is no longer effective. It doesn't work. And he's DDT, DDM, you know, got all his degrees, NBC, CBS, ABC. He's got all of those. And then I'm going to stand up and say, he's wrong. And I can prove it. Then I push him off the stage. You see? So for us, when it comes to our own faith, we've got to be okay with challenging scholars with the simplicity of the gospel that we hold in our lap and in, in the Word of God. Now, see, you haven't got me preaching. Go ahead. You can tell who holds the mic like this. They're ready to go. So. Yeah, hopefully uh, you get a sense of the excitement we feel in this. I, I probably watched this segment six times, and could just speak for hours. But here's what I want to give you as we go into this. They're going to try to convince you that you cannot know the gospel. They're going to try to convince you that you cannot know God. They're going to try to convince you that you cannot know scriptures. And I want to tell you today that God throughout the Bible has made it very clear that he himself makes himself known, that he reveals himself. He is the God who reveals himself. It started in Genesis, and it goes all the way through in Revelations. We see one time after another that God reveals himself to his people. Amen. 
time after time after time again. He will make his purpose known to you. He will make himself known to you. He will make his attributes as they get into it unknown to you. You can know God, and it is through his attributes. It is through the names that he has given. It is through the way that he has revealed his love and his kindness and his goodness that he makes himself known to you. And you can be known by God, known of God, and known to God. And Jerry, right before you close up this part, Remember this, there, there's got to be a couple of things that are givens. They're unchangeable. Like in our marriage, I know that I cannot harm Kelly because grandma will kill me. That's an unchangeable. It does not matter if I'm right or wrong. I harm Kelly, I die. Do you see that? That adds to longevity of life, beauty of life. Now, I said that because we associate... See, your pastor studied a lot of this stuff. If you can get someone feeling an emotion or laughing, they remember. So listen. So Wade said, God will open up the scriptures. He'll reveal himself to me. He'll show these things. And what he shows me can never contradict the revealed word of God. Ever. Ever. So when someone names Jesus, they might be speaking of a different Jesus. They may quote a Bible book, chapter and verse, but address a different Jesus. So we, if it contradicts, just picture that, you know, AG, uh, America Got Talent. Ah, just the X goes up in your heart. Ah, sorry. And let the buzzer go off. And every time they try to speak. Ah, if it, it cannot contradict the Word of God. That's right. No matter how it reasons in my natural faculties. Jay, we'll let you close us out and then Kelly's going to come up and greet our guest. So I just want to encourage everyone here. If you are a new believer, uh, there was a time in 2016 when I came to God and I, I did not realize that Christian TV did not mean that there were Christian people talking to you. And as I would wake up and, you know, changing habits, I'm, I'm, life's changing, things are brand new, and I'm watching this preacher, and it took me about a week before I was just like, Man, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> And I couldn't articulate it. I couldn't have stood next to him and said, this is why that's wrong. But just like Pastor John, the X went on. <laughs> we, when you come into Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if you earnestly are seeking after truth, the Holy Spirit is not going to let you be deceived. Walk in that freedom. And if during this documentary you say, why are there so many contradictions? Well, the simple answer is that we are showing light and dark. And what fellowship does light have with dark? They're going to contradict e each other. There is truth being presented, and there is error being presented. And as Spurgeon said, discernment is not just knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. So if you're watching this documentary, and your <clears throat> goes off, and you can't articulate it, and you don't know why, know that you're not alone in that that we have all walked through that season but take your discipleship seriously the root word being discipline which is never fun and, and and seek the scriptures seek God out you know the truth is there for you and as Pastor John made it so clear it'll never ever, ever contradict the word of God Amen. So. Kelly would you come and greet 
this one on? Yes. I just want everybody to feel really bad for me because I have the hardest job these next couple weeks because we have all this depth and insight and, you know, just great teaching and solid stuff. And then I have to come up and be like, hey, hey, everybody. So <laughs> it's a little bit of like a gear shift that's like, you know, so I've complained about it a little bit. But good morning, <laughs> guys. My name is Kelly Wood. And on behalf of our staff here and my husband, John, I do want to welcome you guys if you're visiting with us today. Um, we have got a great sermon series planned for you if this is your first Sunday with us. Um, we're going to watch a video and then they're going to come back up and discuss it a little bit if you are a first time visitor with us and we happen to miss you as you're walking in the door. I hope that you will stop by our greeting table as you um, exit the building um, through the foyer. We've got our greeter station there. We just want to put a little something in your hands. Just want to know that you are here and see how we can serve you. So um, if you'll do that for me, I would really appreciate it. I'm going to go ahead and ask them to play our announcement video, and then we'll start our music for our time of offering before the video series plays. Good morning and happy Valentine's Day. Listen, we have something special for you as you leave, so don't forget to grab that. Got a couple announcements. We're going to start with February 28th. That is water baptism. If you're interested, please go to the app. Sign up for that so we can be prepared for you. That's February 28th. And our next men's event is March 6th. For more information, go check out our app. Don't forget, March 6th, all men are invited. We have an opportunity for you to reach out beyond the four walls of the church. Coming up in June, we have our missions trip this year to Louisiana. There will be more information and a meeting directly following the service on Sunday, February 28th here in the Grill, so don't miss it. Make plans to join us. We also have something coming up for the entire family. It's a one-day event on Saturday, March 13th. Make sure you stop by the Student Center today. Pick up more information about Kids Fest 2021. Ladies, we have an event for you as well. Chris was talking about the men's event. Well, we have something just for you on Saturday, March 20th from 4 to 7 p.m. Head over to the app to get more information today. We want to invite you to join us tonight at 6 p.m. for our Sunday evening service. It'll be here in the grill. It'll also be live on Facebook. There will not be open gym for our youth. So make sure join us tonight online or here live at the church. And if you have any questions, we want to always give you more information through our app. Download our CC app. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Christ Chapel Macon or online at ChristChapelMacon.com. Have an awesome day and happy Valentine's Day. Good morning. Coming to you from Christ Chapel, Maine at Westside Cinema. We are so thankful for all your prayers Thank and you. support and help. And uh, we're just uh, excited about what's going to happen today. We have a number of people coming out. I'd love to fill this place. There are eight cinemas here. We're running one, but I would be very happy to rent all eight every week. You send us the people with no church and we'll keep doing it. I'm amazed this morning just thinking about it, getting my coffee out here at the refreshment stand in the theater here, uh, just thinking about the fact that God would use my wife and I 
in our very, very early, early 60s, <laughs> we're just thankful. And thank you for your belief in us and all the financial support. Some of you have extended to six months to 12 months. And there's no way to thank you enough for that. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. There's no From way the we'd even be here. <laughs> there's no way we would even thank be you. here. So thank you. We're having great results already. And this is only week five. God bless you guys. We love you. You have a great day. Keep us in prayer. All right, guys, if you'll go ahead and play our music and we'll have our time of offering and then we'll start our video series. One of the problems, I think, with the American gospel today is that we start in the very wrong place. We start with the cross of Jesus Christ. We're asking them to accept a Savior that they don't even know they need. So to me, this is why we have so many false conversions today. We've only given them half the message. What we have to understand is the gospel primarily has to do with the attributes of God, not just the sin of man. You see, the sin of man wouldn't be a problem if God was like us, but God is not like us. And all his attributes fit perfectly together into one glorious whole, and you can sum them all up by saying, God is holy. And of course, the signature text for that is Isaiah chapter 6, when the year that King Uzziah died, the prophet Isaiah went into the temple, and he encounters God in a vision that is just extraordinary as he sees God high and lifted up. And then he hears the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. When something is repeated three times, it takes it to the superlative degree. What the angels are crying out is, holy, holier, holiest. 
Something we see very often in progressive Christianity is the redefinition of words. So they will take words that Christians have historically understood to be defined in a certain way. They will assign them a new definition and then just use them in regular conversation as if we all understand the new meaning. So a great example of this comes from Nadia Boltz Weber, who is a progressive Lutheran minister who wrote a book on biblical sexuality. And and in her view, we need to completely have an absolute upheaval of the Christian view of sexuality. In fact, she says we need to take everything that we've believed for the last 2,000 years and burn it to the ground. So one of the foundations upon which she builds her argument is her definition of the word holy or holiness. And so she defines the word holiness to mean something more like unity. Being together, it means there being uh, unity between people and unity with God. And so this is why she can give an example of someone having a one-night stand and call it holy, because there's the unifying of two people. Well, of course, biblically speaking, holiness actually means the exact opposite. In fact, biblical holiness has to do with God being separate from sin, being completely other than sin. He's transcendent, totally set apart from his creation. And whenever sinful man is in the presence of holy God, he becomes painfully aware of his own unholiness. And Isaiah, uh, he's undone. When he says, woe is me, he is saying, cursed is me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. The fact that God forgives wicked men presents a theological problem. Now people say, why would that be a problem? It demonstrates that, that God's love and that God is merciful. Well, God is love and God is merciful, but He's not only that. And if you look over here in Exodus 34, I'll read this to you. It's one of the greatest revelations of God in the Scriptures. Moses asked God to show him His glory, and He does. And then this is the following that pursues. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So far, so good. That's really good news for fallen man. But then we go a little bit farther and it says this, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. How does that go together? That's the the tension. I call that the sort of riddle of the Old Testament. It's not tap dancing around the nature of God. It's saying very straightforwardly, this is what God is like. Now look at this. How can God forgive all types and kinds of sin and yet at the same time punish every type and kind of sin? Ultimately, verses like that drive me into the mystical side of theology. I have to disabuse myself of thinking that is a rational contradiction. How can you say you forgive everybody but not the guilty? Like, 
we're all guilty, so you don't forgive anybody. If you're not forgiving the guilty, who are you forgiving? <laughs> God is no fool, and he does not give contradictions. That is who God is. God is a God who in our minds is constantly at tension. Merciful, loving, forgiving, but also not forgiving. And he says, I am loving, but I am just. That's interpretation. That's not actually what the verse says. So I, I'm, you, you know, we all have our right to interpret it, but it doesn't say, and God is just in that verse. That's not what it says. That may be what it means, but what the verse actually says is, he does not forgive the guilty. And that drives me out of my head and into my heart and say, this is a verse for me to reflect on and digest and kind of existentially experience as opposed to it being a verse for me to figure out. And then we go a little bit further in the scriptures and we can also see this in Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Most of our hymns in the church have to do with God justifying us who were wicked. But here in Proverbs, it says that anyone who justifies the wicked, it's an abomination to God. So how can God justify wicked men, as we see in Romans chapter 4, and at the same time avoid the title of an abomination? The question is, how is forgiveness meted out by God? Are there strings attached to God's forgiveness? Now, this is one of the most comforting and beautiful passages in the entire Bible taken from the book of Psalms and found in Romans 4, 7 through 8. And it says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. What do we call a judge who covers sin? We say that he's unjust. We say that he's corrupt. And yet here we see God who makes the claim to be righteous and holy, and he's covering sin. The justice of God is something that is revealed in the Bible as being fundamentally rooted in the nature of God. Uh, God is called the judge of all. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. And the reason why he is the judge is because he is morally righteous. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. All human beings have this longing for justice. It's, it's in our bones. It is deep into the, the human psyche that we want the world to be made right. As an atheist, I often saw the suffering in the world as, as, as giving me justification for my, my hatred towards God. How would he allow this to happen? You know, right after I became a Christian, I, I started working in the inner city with poor people, and I would meet people that were suffering. I met girls that had been raped and, and, and kids that had their fathers be killed. I struggled with evil to the degree that I wanted to take vengeance against evil people. I mean, I, I'll be perfectly honest. I, I joined the military so that I could go kill evil people. I learned through Scripture that that is misplaced. Scripture says that vengeance is the Lord's.
And over the course of that time, I would say that my commitment to loving relationships and to social justice grew and grew and grew. And my ability to believe in a supernatural person who intervened on behalf of human beings kind of died the death of a thousand unanswered prayers. I was a believer in a sovereign God who actually predestined everything and ran the world. And when somebody was sick, we would pray like, God, heal Sister Mary. And in my own life, my wife suffered through years and years and continues to suffer uh, through years of medical problems, through very serious genetic disorders and, and botched surgeries and near-death experiences. And I mean, in my personal experience, even just this last week, I've had a lot of pain. My daughter's in a lot of pain. She has the same genetic disorder that I do. I told her, you know, there will be times in your life where whether it's mental suffering, emotional, spiritual, or physical, where there is nothing you can say, but God, please. And we realize that there, there is no way that we can go on without him. I have a friend who says like nothing fails like prayer and that was my experience like in the inner city. Could you heal this lady who's got six kids and that are depending on her? Could you heal her from cancer? And she would die. Life shouldn't look like a kid in a wheelchair. Life shouldn't look like cancer for the second time. But the thing is, it's not about that. It's about giving God glory. Either God knows this is happening, and this is his idea of a good time, in which case I'm not sure I like God anymore, or maybe God isn't as, as much in control of the world as I thought he was. And in rapid succession, as a young Christian, of facing these really terrible situations, God showed me how he was working through those things. And he reoriented me from a perspective of entitlement and pride and judging God for what he did to a perspective of seeing God glorified in suffering and rejoicing for the way he was able to turn terrible things into good things. In my Lily White suburb, you could get away with a sovereignty argument. You, could, <laughs> like, you can't have a God who's in charge of everything if you're in the, in the inner city and still end up liking him. Once I started <laughs> suffering, it's almost like that taught me more and more about how much God loved me. And the only way I can explain that is by God's grace, because it makes no sense. If I could get those years that she suffered back and allow her to be happy and healthy in those years, I wouldn't. Because I can see how God in his sovereignty led us closer to him than we ever would have been had we not suffered in that way. He just shows us that ultimate act of surrendering into suffering. And ours is nothing, nothing, and nowhere near His. We also have to be honest to realize if God is going to purge the world of all evil, get rid of all the sin and brokenness and evil of this world, just a little bit of self-examination and self-reflection would lead us to realize, uh-oh, our longing for justice would come back against us. So the great question in the entire Bible is this, if God is righteous, how can he pardon men who are wicked and still maintain his righteousness? Well, forgiveness in the Bible carries a great cost because in order for God to forgive the sinner, 
God's justice must be satisfied. And therefore, Jesus had to pay a penalty that would satisfy the wrath of an infinite God. I think in the present day, there's a lot of discomfort with the idea of God being wrathful. And there is a lot of discomfort with the idea of divinely sanctioned violence. Is it not true, not that long ago, USA Today talks about the Presbyterian Church fighting over a song in Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. And for years, people have been changing one of the lyrics. Some churches on the more progressive side who had trouble with this idea that God's wrath needed to be satisfied had just changed that one line to God's love was magnified. So when Jesus died on the cross, God's love was magnified. Well, when the new hymnal of the Presbyterian Church USA, which is one of the larger denominations, when they were doing their new hymnal, they actually went to the copyright holders of the song and said, you know, we want permission to change this one line. And the answer on the part of the hymn writers, I think, has been a very strong no, you mustn't change it. Because they understand that uh, God's wrath and God's love are not in opposition to one another, but the one explains the other. And this is the dilemma of the American pulpit. We've got a God of wrath versus a God of love, which is a dichotomy that the Bible doesn't present. So it just shows the split I mean, both that the Presbyterians wouldn't include it and that the songwriters wouldn't allow a pretty minor change. is a classic illustration of the attempt to kind of contextualize the hard parts of the Bible in such a way as to make people comfortable and at the same time deny the truth of the gospel. The one man said who wanted that lyric changed. This lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. The cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. Yeah, the title of my most recent book is Did God Kill Jesus? Which I used because it was a quandary I had myself and it was something that I had heard from a lot of people. And that is they're struggling with the understandings of the cross and Jesus' death on the cross in which it seemed like God had to exact some kind of revenge or payment from Jesus. If God needs someone to pay the price for our sin, the question is, does he ever really forgive anyone at all? So how can he do that? How can he forgive sins? Does he just overlook them? And the biblical answer is no. That's what the death of Christ is all about. He paid the price of other people's sins. Some people call it the penal substitution theory of the atonement. I refer to it as the payment model of the atonement. So the, the big question underlying the book, and I think underlying the cross in general, when you think about it theologically at least, is, is God the author of the crucifixion? Explain to me how the cross could originate in God. Or, to put it more bluntly, did God kill Jesus? Well, attacks on penal substitution have been around for a long time, but I think they made their way into the larger evangelical culture through the book The Shack. 
And because it was in novel style, it wasn't completely clear the theology that was being taught in the book. That's when your whole wrath thing comes in, right? My what? Your wrath. You lost me there. One thing that was made clear in the shack, though, was that Jesus' death accomplished the reconciliation of all human beings to God. Everybody knows you punish the people who disappoint you. Hmm. Nope. I don't need to punish people. Sin is his own punishment. Well, a few years later, William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, came out with a book called Lies We Believe About God. And in Lies We Believe About God, William Paul Young teaches that it's a lie to think that God originated the cross, that it was God's idea uh, to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And that if that's true, that makes him nothing more than a cosmic abuser. And this is a theme that's very big in the progressive Christian church, is the idea of cosmic child abuse. The problem with this way of thinking about the cross is that it turns God into some kind of like divine child abuser. And so this is, this is largely rejected in the progressive church. I don't think God killed Jesus. I think God died on the cross. Did God kill Jesus? Yes. Did Jesus go to the cross unwillingly? No. The idea that God would say, I'm going to punish somebody else for your sins, it doesn't make any sense anywhere. Every version of the atonement has problems. The problem with penal substitution is that it puts God under or beholden to some transcendent version of justice that even God has to live under that umbrella and say, well, I can't just forgive these people. Someone needs to pay the debt. Someone needs to pay the penalty. And so I'd like to forgive you all, but I've got to pay off justice first. It begs the question, who's in charge here? God could say, no, I don't, I don't need these people to pay me back. I'm just gonna forgive their debt. I'm gonna declare a year of Jubilee. All human sin is forgiven. Nobody has to die. When we say God is perfectly just and that he can't just wink at sin and forgive sinners without satisfying that justice, we're not putting an external standard above God that controls his motivations or his actions. This justice, just like his goodness and his immutability and his love are all a part of his nature and his character. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, the upright will behold his face. They're definitional of who God is, and we know that, not because that's how we like to think about God, but because that's how God has revealed himself in Scripture. I think that's such a huge theological problem to say these attributes are just a part of God and God cannot change, or God is beholden to these attributes of God. Who says? It's God. God doesn't have to be beholden to any attributes. It's like people say things like, you can't have love without justice, and everyone in the pew is like, oh yeah, boy, that makes perfect sense. Who says you can't have love without justice? There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't have love without justice. There are all sorts of attributes of God, and 
One of the, the ones that the church used to talk a lot about and has forgotten is called the simplicity of God, which doesn't mean God is a, a simpleton, but it means that whatever God has, God is. So it's not that he has 50% of love and 50% of justice, or we can break it up into smaller percentages so that he has a little of this and a little of that in him. No, he actually has 100% of every attribute. That's why he's perfect. For example, when God demonstrates righteousness or justice, he does it in a most loving way. And when he demonstrates love, he does it righteously. This too, I think, is a really uh, great misunderstanding. People think that God has the Ten Commandments and he has to submit to those Ten Commandments. No, he doesn't. The Ten Commandments are a reflection of who He is and His nature. They tell us what God is like, and this, this is what God expects us to be like. I have heard evangelists say this sometimes, uh, wrongly. They say, instead of being just with you, God was merciful. But that means that God's mercy or God's love was unjust. So there's a sermon by Stephen Furtick of Elevation Church where he's basically saying, that in order for God to love us, he had to ignore his justice, ignore his own holiness. Let's say your child is in a horrible accident and on the way to the emergency room, every sign you see says, uh, speed limit. How much attention do you pay to the numbers beneath the speed limit in that moment? you would break that speed limit. You would break the law for love. Any parent will break the law for the sake of love. And so he uses this illustration and applies it to the gospel. And this is why the gospel is still good news in the world today, because God broke the law for love. I definitely don't believe he recognizes the implications behind what he's saying. One thing with his saying that that God broke the law for love is he's calling God a sinner. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. He's also saying that what Jesus said is irrelevant. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and not one jot or tittle will pass away. You cannot say that God abandons justice in favor of love. So to say that God broke the law for love is absolutely absurd. Love and justice are inextricably linked. We could think of a judge. You know, he says he's a loving judge, and yet he's presented with a criminal who's destroyed property and killed people and, and abused others. We would say that a judge who allowed that criminal to walk because of his love was actually being profoundly unloving to that criminal's victims. To fail to punish evil is an unloving act. If you're unjust, you're also unloving. Those two things are inextricably linked. Well, you're, I, I agree. In a, in a human society, that's probably right. But God transcends all those categories. Now, God may choose to say, I'm going to always pair my love with justice. Always. These two things, I'm not going to let them be separated. But if God decided to, surely it's within God's power to say, it's just love. We don't need justice anymore. I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to forgive the sin. 
Nobody has to die. That is surely within God's power. How is God supposed to love the world and then simply shrug his shoulders at some of the horrors and injustice that go on in this world? How could a God of love not also be a God of justice? I'm saying God, if God chose to, could have love without justice, if God chose to. Uh, the, the God that would never judge anyone is not too loving. He's not loving enough. That's a sappy, sentimental deity. That is not the God of the Bible. Well, the first thing I'd say I saw in the movement of the emergent church when I was in college was not just a misunderstanding of doctrine or the misunderstanding of the attributes of God, it was a run from it altogether. To try and actually say this is who God is and this is what he's like was just out of bounds for them. God gets to do whatever God wants. That's one of my fundamental commitments to being a theist. So one of the things that means is that God can be arbitrary. Then we're left with just the, we don't really know who God is because we can't actually define him and we can't turn to scripture and say, okay, this is what scripture says about who God is. I would never use the sentence, God cannot do fill in the blank. God cannot be fill in the blank. And this means we can't describe God's attributes in any way. So not only can't we make negative statements like God cannot lie, God cannot sin, God cannot be unrighteous, but we also wouldn't be able to make positive statements either. So these are the opposites. God is truth. God is holy. God is righteous. On, on like theological principle, I refuse to talk about God in those ways because I think that is me humanizing God, anthropomorphizing God. If we start to determine that God is predictable, that God is always like this, or God always does that, or God cannot do this. God becomes a robot that we have programmed. If God were to change, or if God were able to change, why should we trust him? Why should we believe the Bible? Once you start to redefine God like that, you have a different one. We're no longer talking about the same God. As Jason and Wade make, we make our way up to the table, I want to address one thing and then we'll begin to discuss this. Years ago, many years ago, when we were at the Second Baptist Building, I gave my staff a copy of the book, The Shack. And if you've read it, contextually, it comes across, because I read it before I gave it to them. It's the story of a man whose daughter was abducted, brutally raped and murdered, and the man was completely alienated from God. How could you let this happen? The takeaway from the book for me when I read it was that God meets us at our lowest place. And regardless of how in opposition to God this man was, God was merciful. The context where you saw the woman uh, who was supposed to be uh, a manifestation of God, which God could take any form he wants, but she said, the wrath part, you lost me there. If you read the book, you would understand that that's all he saw God as, was wrathful. And then the statement, sin is its own punishment, yes it is, comma, not period, in this world. But in the one to come, there's judgment for it. But here's the thing I want to introduce to you, and it takes discipline, 
It takes effort, and you can underline it, and honesty. It wasn't long later till he came out with his book and further explained his views on the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And anytime you change those modifiers, you'll eventually get to a gospel where Christ did not have to die. That's what everything leads to. So now, I would never recommend the book. I didn't go see the movie. Uh, now, I'm not saying if you did, you're going to hell. You know, don't, don't. It's just when someone makes their doctrines known, I'm now responsible. Now, we've, I've already caught flack. I know our worship leaders have. I'm just going to explain to you when, uh, and I'll do this very quickly, when, like when Stephen Furtick preached that uh, imbecilic view of God broke the law. He appealed to a human emotion which every one of us would answer. Yes, I would break the speed limit. But when you can jump from that feeling to God would violate his personhood, people will get more mad that I call out their preacher than they will about the damning doctrine that he preaches. Okay, having said that, and I know some of y'all, he's your guy. Listen, trust me, it'd be better had a pastor had an affair than to touch your celebrity. Just let that hang in the air there. Because there is so much error that comes from that church, we choose. I don't bash him. I don't, it's, he's not the theme of this church. We don't sing their songs. Well, why? Because I am a shepherd. And if, if the connectivity from the song leads you to what comes from the pulpit... I'm responsible for that. Now, I am not telling you, you can't sing the songs. I'm telling you why we don't. Because some people might hear the song, sing the song, hear the guy, and not know the difference. And lose a decade or be led into error. So, as far as the shack goes, no more shack. And anytime someone tells me that Christ or God broke, the law of God, I don't think I need, everything's going to flow from that mentality, and you know, a bitter stream can't help but give you bitter water. So I set you up, here's the tea, here's the beach ball, just hit it. All right, well I'm going to try to swing away, see what we get here. <laughs> yeah, you can. Okay, so. One thing that seems to be brought into question during this segment is truth, like reliability of truth, what is truth, how do we know these things are true, how can we know that these are the attributes of God. Uh, I find throughout some of their comments that I question if they've ever actually read the Bible. Um, it's mind-blowing. Uh, the truth of Christ is our true north. That is our compass. His truth and his word is immutable. Now, when Tony Jones says if he chose to, he could link the two together. We ha he has in the word of God. He has linked uh, love and truth and love and justice together. It's already been done. What do you mean if he chooses to? And then they'll throw out some big words that are confusing, like, that's me anthropomorphizing God. Well, 
lucky for me, I know what that word means. I didn't when he said it, I Googled it. You know what I mean? I got a supercomputer in my pocket. Dude doesn't scare me. All right? It just means you are applying personal attributes to a God, to God. Well, in that moment when he said God can be arbitrary if he chooses to, he is doing the very thing that he is rejecting. He is applying. Humans, we, we can be uh, arbitrary. God cannot. His word tells us that he cannot be arbitrary. It, it's very, yeah. he is immutable. Yeah. It is, and, and why did God have to die or what, stuff like that? What, what, how did that help God? It, it didn't, it helped me. <laughs> I was the one that was under judgment. But when he says you're anthropomorphizing God, you're giving him these human characteristics. God can be arbitrary if he wants. That's one of my fundamental uh, beliefs as a theist. Well, it's interesting that he would describe himself as a theist instead of a Christ follower or a believer. Uh, a theist is a defined as a person who believes in the existence of a God or gods, spe specifically of a creator who intervenes in the universe. So by his own admission, he claims to be a theist, which is not uh, germane to Christianity, that it doesn't mean I believe in God, I'm a Christ follower. And then he's, he assigns human characteristics to this God that he believes in, saying that he can be arbitrary. So if you look at his argument, while he may present it with such arrogance and, and finality, like, oh, wow, this guy must be onto something, you know, or it might make you step back if you're young in your faith. This dude is preaching nonsense. He undermines his entire argument by his own statements, and he is assuming that the arbitrary nature of God is going to be to forgive and that it's going to be, be applicable to him. Well, if God can be so arbitrary, then he could just punish us all too. Jay, let me, let me jump into where... He'll use natural reasoning, and I've thought this. Now, if he's God, can he do anything that he wants? By, by the, but the question contextualized in the sense of power. Can't God do anything he wants? Yes. But if he changes not, I am the Lord, see, by knowing the Scripture, and I change not, that is not him being powerless. That's him being consistent. You see, so if I didn't know that scripture, I would say, well, surely God can decide to just forgive if he wants to forgive. I think he used uh, the jubilee, forgive everyone. But, but he cannot, we, it goes back to, we cannot violate scripture. And if he's the Lord that changes not, then he will always be righteous. He will always be loving. He will always be merciful. And his judgment will be accurate. To the, to the very syllables that people speak. So there's no, it's not, I love that it said it's not little divisions. 15% this, 20% this. If he, if he shows you in his word or teaches you that he is kind, then he's always kind. Can't be unkind. And if he's perfect, this is where the rubber meets the road. Then no matter what station of life I'm in, I must look past my reasoning, the faculty, my reasoning faculties and say, I may not be able to see, but I know that all things work together for good because I love God. Why? Because God is good. Wait. 
And there's this huge deconstruction to go back and hit a word that they talked about in the beginning. Things that you've grown up believing about God, they want to destroy those. They want to tear those down. They want to cause you to question those. They want to cause you to wonder if that's true, just to wonder slightly so they can get their foot in the door. And the the difficulty with that or the, the issue with this is it begins to dis- diminish the authority of God so that you can elevate the authority of man. If you listen to them talk, you'll hear them do this, that, that they're creating a God in their own image or their own understanding, um, this amorphizing, this humanizing God. Um, it, it's it's crazy that he would even say, I don't want to do this, but yet he turns around and he tells us that God is amenable, that he changes, that he's mending or he's conforming to his idea. He's a walking contradiction of himself. He, I, he irritates me more than anybody else in the whole thing. Um, just to throw that out there, but God is not adaptable. We are adaptable. We evolve in, in things, not an evolution. I'm not. Wait, I want to ask you a question. <laughs> what about when he says, uh, when he was describing God? Um, lost my train of thought. Never mind. Continue. All right. Well, I'll continue this because I'm, I'm good to go. Uh, so a lot of times you'll see what they happen is as you, as we walk through this, there was guys who were giving you scripture. They were constantly going back to the scriptures. Oh, Here's scripture. Here's scripture. Put, put your finger right there. All right. <laughs> they, they love to see the human side of their pastor. Please don't forget it again, John. Did I just forget it again? Telling you that I'm being serious. Uh, oh, when he says, when I read scripture like this, I cannot, without him changing, I cannot, and I'm summarizing, I cannot process, I can't just surrender to that and believe it. I have to step back from it. Now watch, distance myself from the scripture mm-hmm. and existentially experience it with my intellect. What yeah. in the round world does that mean? <laughs> Because whether it's on china plates or paper plates, baloney's baloney. Spam right. is spam. <laughs> yeah. uh, hey. So, well, and this is what Paul speaks of in Romans, where God turns us over to the depravity of our own mind. We refuse to accept God as who He is, and so therefore we have to reconstruct another idea of who God is. This is the pure nature of things. And when we reject the authority of God, the authority of scriptures, then we have to construct something else in its place. And so what you'll hear them do is they begin to do it with stories. They want to storyize. They want to contextualize the gospel in a way. And so as we saw with Furtick, he doesn't go to the scriptures to teach you about God's love. He creates this story. He injects you into the story and then morphs God to fit the story. It happens all the time. You see this in the New Apostolic Reformation that dreams now become the new authority. I had this dream. Pastor John, i got to tell you about my dream. God gave me a dream. And now this dream becomes the authority of which now we rest the rest of our life upon. And so there's a lot of this is happening. And so we we can't... um, See, it's spreading. Yeah. (laughs) As as I Uh, exhale it out. And so a lot of this is we can't know God. Go back to what I said, you know, because they can't know God, they say you can't know God. Well, they can't know God because they've been turned over to the foolishness of their own understanding. They've rejected God. If you reject God, you cannot know God. And so if you want to know God, you're going to have to go centrally to the Scriptures to get to know God. And God gets to do, he he said this, God gets to do what God wants. And then he attempts to define who God is. I'm baffled at that idea. God God does what he wants. God did what he wants. 
He recorded what he did. <laughs> and what he recorded stands. That right there, bumper yep. sticker. Hashtag, those of y'all on the computer, hashtag that. So, All right, let me finish this, and I'm going I'm to give it to you. I'm going to tie this out. Uh, he makes this statement. If we start to determine that God is predictable or that God is constant, God becomes a robot of our construct. Now, he just told you we couldn't construct God, right? But he says, if we do this, then we begin to do that. That we program, and this is exactly what Tony wants. He wants you to program who God is. He spent his whole time, his argument, trying to program who God is, and then says, oh, we can't do that. Well, what he's meaning to say, and he wants you to believe, is that you can't do that, but he can. And so he's wanting to transition the authority away from, this was a huge thing that happened with Martin Luther with the, the Catholic Church, right? Is that the, the Pope had all the authority, and only the church could interpret Scripture. But to him it was, no, the Holy Spirit is the one who interprets Scripture. The Holy one, Spirit is the one who gives revelation. Well, he, he believed that he was the one that interpreted Scripture. Yes. The church wasn't even supposed to read it. It's done in Latin. Well, the church people, but the church hierarchy. The hierarchy. Yeah, the hierarchy of the church. Yeah. And so now here is this theist who now has to elevate himself as the hierarchy so that you listen and worship him and buy his books so that he can teach you who God is. You do not need a man to teach you who God is. The Holy Spirit will teach you who God is. Jason, right before you go, so then we dovetail. Well, if I don't need a man to teach me who God is, what are you doing? I am echoing the scriptures that you read. Mm -hmm. Amen. I am confirming and I am turning the diamond of Jesus Christ so that you can catch the prisms as the light shines upon it. That's what I'm doing. When the Bible says you have need that no man teach you, yet he put teachers in the church. What's he saying? He's saying in, the, in, in priority, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all. Say that with me. All truth. So what does the pastor do? He teaches from the scripture that will intertwine with that which you've read, which will bring clarity to what you've studied, what you've learned, and you come to a fuller understanding of that which the Holy Spirit has taught you. I'm not deconstructing you. I'm turning the prism. Follow that, Jay. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so while we're talking about deconstructing and attacks on the reliability and the uh, trustworthiness of the Word of God, if they can't get you to buy into that, then they are just going to start redefining the words that you stand upon. And that was something that was brought out uh, this is observed not only in this documentary, but I think most of us would say that we've observed this in culture as well right now. There is an effort to redefine words and then plug them back into language and run on the assumption that everybody understands the new definition. So I'm going to give an antiquated uh, example of this, an old example of this, so that it makes sense, okay? C.S. Lewis gives this example in Mere Christianity. He says, gentleman was a word that used to have purpose. It had meaning. I could use it. But we've over-spiritualized it and pushed it beyond any relative meaning. Well, what do you mean by that? Gentlemen, I mean, these guys are gentlemen, right? Well, he said, gentleman used to mean that a man had a coat of arms and he owned land. It was a descriptor. And so somebody could be a jerk and a gentleman at the same time. And somebody could be very benevolent and giving and generous and not be a gentleman. Because all that meant was you had a coat of arms and you owned land. 
Well, then we start thinking about that and saying, well, isn't the guy that's generous and benevolent much more the embodiment of a gentleman than this guy who has a coat of arms and owns land and is a jerk? So I'm gonna call this guy a gentleman too. So now we've over-spiritualized the word so that gentleman just means that the person that's speaking approves of the person I'm speaking about. We have no language. We already had language for that. We don't have language that just real succinctly will let you know this person has a coat of arms and owns land anymore. But so we've eroded the usability, the purpose of that word. I've got one for you. He's got one one for you. All right. Peaceful protest. These were... Come on, we, I mean, we're, are we not seeing this play out in our culture right These now? These were not mostly nonviolent protests as the city burns behind yeah. you. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Just so, a thought. It's just an idea. So let's tie into that. We are de- destroying the word of the Bible so that the city that burns behind will be the resident of those that follow you. Your, your daddy's the devil. <laughs> you are leading people in a doctrine of demons And I don't say that from a place of superiority. I say that from a contrite and humble heart. And I stand before you no better than anyone else. And God has redeemed me from the pit and set me on solid ground. And I tell you this because I know the truth of the word. I know the truth of who Christ is and his immutability. Okay, I'm not up here because I I was just looking for something to do this morning. I want you to know (laughs) that this attack on these words is important. When she redis Nadia Bowles Weber, an, an ordained minister ordained. in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, ordained, this is where she stands. She has redefined holiness. Now, unless you can read like 83 words a second, you probably missed the blips where they were talking about it on, I had to pause and write this down, okay? So I'm going to share with you the entirety of what it says. Holiness, this is her definition. Holiness is the union we experience with one another and with God. Holiness is when more than one become one, when what is fractured is made whole. Now, there's some truth in that definition, but look at the application. Now, the definition isn't completely true, and when we apply this definition, we take that definition, here's the application. He told me that he'd recently hooked up with a guy he met in a bar. And afterwards, he spotted the man's scars on his arms. Then the two of them stayed up all night telling stories of their scars. And Michael found that holy. I do too. That's taken straight from her book. So Nadia Bowles-Weber is endorsing sexual immorality on the basis of a, a redefined holiness, saying that we are having communion with God when we are directly acting out the things in the word of God that are said to be abhorrent and to keep you out of the kingdom of God. The, the inmate is running the asylum at that point. We're saying whatever you want goes and, and the stakes are high. The reason my voice is firm and, I, and I'm tr- like, I want you to get this right now is because the stakes are high. There will be a day where you face a judge with one of two outcomes, you will be welcomed into the kingdom of God and so shall it ever be, or you will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. And if you're following this doctrine that says holiness is sexual immorality, that hooking up for a one night stand with somebody I met in the bar, that bucks everything that the Bible says is holiness. God is holiness because he is the exact opposite of everything that that, 
that is that builds the context for that scenario. We've redefined the word Christian and Christianity as well. If I mentally ascend to the idea, you like how I said that? Mentally ascend to the idea. It sounded smart. It sounded smart. If I mentally ascend to the idea that God exists and that Jesus exists, I am a Christian. No. A Christian is someone who has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they understand the impossibility of their salvation for they are dead in trespasses and sins and what can a dead man do but stay dead? And the gospel message that Christ died for my sins according to the scripture. If I was dead in my trespasses and sins, then he hears the gospel and since his spirit is dead, his soul, his, the seat of his emotions, his mind, his intellect, cries out to God to have mercy on him and bring him back from the dead. You see, false doctrine, rewriting the words Christian, how many of you, and I know this is a rhetorical question, have friends that live like hell? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Or if you ask, hey, are you a believer? They say, yeah, I go to X, Y, and Z church. Yeah, because we changed the, 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 the definition of the word Christian. A Christian is someone that's been born again of the Spirit who is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. They've been born again, and the natural response to being born again is, what would you have me do, Lord? Yeah. The Lordship. Well, they're saved, but they're just, you know, they're, they're journeying. You know, the Lord's trying to help them with that. And people tell me all the time, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to quit. You know, I'm trying to quit sleeping around. I'm trying to quit getting stoned. You know what I'm trying means? I'm still doing it. When you hear somebody say, I'm trying, just scratch through that and write, I'm still doing it. But God <laughs> is completely separate from sin, and he cannot sin. And according to biblical precedent, whenever unholy man is in the presence of holy God, they become painfully aware of how unholy they are. The arrogance of some of these people that are teaching false doctrine is, I fear and tremble for them on the day of judgment. Because Isaiah, a man that was stood up to be the prophet, to speak for God in his time, in front of God, he said, woe is me. Like, people fall on their face, they hide their face, they say, I I'm undone. I'm cursed because of my own unrighteousness in the presence of a holy God. So if we don't see God as altogether holy, who judges sin, where is the trembling? Where is the repentance? And see, we have the church, by that of the professing church, has distributed a grace that did not, did not originate in heaven. Just ask Jesus into your heart. No, no. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is hand. You must be born again. Guys, I'll give you one more closing thought, and then I want to say something, and then we're going to worship a song. So y'all go ahead. Okay, come back tonight, or tune in tonight. <laughs> um, Six o'clock in the grill. Yeah, I told Jason, I was like, I, I'm just loaded uh, today. <laughs> I could go on for hours. Um, there's, there's several things that just really, that, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address these tonight, that just, to just grade me when they say this, this divine child abuser. Tonight. Whew, tonight. tonight. No. Uh, just. We've got mm. 10 minutes. Um, penal substitutionary atonement is not a theory. This is a doctrine of the church. This isn't just some man's idea. This is the doctrine of the church that stood for years. This isn't a theory. This is the doctrine of the church. This is everything hinges and cruxes on this. Um, 
the death of a thousand unanswered prayers, or nothing feels like prayer. I don't know if you caught that. There's so many wrong assumptions in that statement that I could go on an hour probably just so that I won't, but tune in tonight. I'd love to hear from you guys on some of these things and unpack That's some way. of these tune things some more. Tune in tonight. Jay? Uh, I'm just going to hit this real quick. When they're talking about changing the lyrics of In Christ Alone, it's till on that cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, I don't like that. I want it to be the love of God was magnified. Well, Jesus dying on the cross, if it wasn't to satisfy God's wrath, put me in right standing with God, then what was so loving about it? I'll just submit that to you. Think, think that through. They're like, this is such a subtle change. Well, if, if it didn't do anything for me, like... I believe God died on the cross, but I don't believe God killed Jesus. Well, why? Just think of, I would think on those things and tune in tonight. All right. Will you bring that up front for me? All right. I got about eight minutes. Y'all enjoying this? Isn't this rich? I love. Thank you. And that's not a, that's not a clap for us. We're hoping to create a thirst in you. Uh, to spend time with others of like precious faith and hash these things out. I wanted to take the last couple of minutes and just talk to you as your pastor about two points, about the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. At the root of all of this double speak, at the root of this word salad of diluted, polluted theologies, it is to remove the biblical Christ from the gospel. To present it with a modern day Christ that is not a Christ. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. A bloodless gospel. A, a, a sacrificial less gospel. An a, 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 a gospel with no atonement. A gospel of works. A, a gospel of social justice. A gospel of... of being palpable to the masses. See the origin of this. When Paul said, and I, Jay and I were talking this morning, and, and he brought this out, when, when Paul said, if I, group me with them, group me with everyone on this video, if I, or an angel from heaven, preach another gospel, let him be accursed, accursed from God, accursed from this world. Number one, of the two, the blood is primarily for God. The blood is for atonement and has to do with our standing before God. Therefore, the blood is not for you. It is for God. And I, I won't go into all of it, but if you have time later uh, in Exodus 12, here's the statement God tells them. He tells the man, if our musician would come to the front too, he tells them, uh, the men of, the, of, of Israel to take the blood of the lamb, the pure lamb, spotless lamb for each household and put it upon the doorpost. And when the death angel was to pass through in the story of Exodus, and I know this is a long story, I'm condensing down to something very small. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. They are inside. They do not see the blood, but they know where it is. It's on their home. See, the blood is not for me to behold. Later on, the Bible tells us in Leviticus, I think it's 16, where the priest goes in 
uh, for the people. And on the outer court, he sprinkles everything seven times with the blood. And the people see that. But when he goes into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, only God sees him. See, the earthly, let me read this to you. I'd written it out for you. Hold on. The earthly tabernacle was an imitation of the heavenly one. The earthly priest was a representation of the heavenly priest. The earthly sacrifice was a symbolic type of the heavenly sacrifice. The earthly pardon was the promise of the heavenly one to come. So when that priest went in the Holy of Holies behind the veil and he put the blood of this spotless lamb once a year on the Day of Atonement, because it reminded God of the plan of the death of the lamb before the foundation of the earth, God attributed it as if it were there, not in its fullness, but he recognized, I recognize that lamb. Your sins, your pardon, your, your judgment is postponed for a year. I recognize that tabernacle because there's one in heaven. I recognize the lamb. I recognize the blood. And when Christ comes, now watch, watch how this ties together. It's, it is to take our breath away. So when the priest brings the blood in, we don't see the blood. The blood is not for you. It is for God. So if I have a bloodless gospel, I have no offering for my sins. And when Christ came into the heavenly tabernacle, when Christ did, and he put the blood on the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle like the priest did in the tabernacle fashioned like unto Moses, it now there testifies of the redemption that's ours. And God gave an earthly sign that he didn't have to do. The earthly system for thousands of years was a veil. Thick. You couldn't cut it with a sword, much less with human hands. And when Christ died and he gave up the ghost, the veil was ripped from heaven down down the middle, and it parted, and God said, come in. Now, brethren, we have boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which he has consecrated through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with full assurance of faith. Yes, we should be dogmatic. Yes, we should hold. Because there is no other gospel. There, there is, but it's not. There are other Christs, but there are not. Don't let people bewitch you from the simplicity of Jesus Christ. The blood was for God. The blood was a requirement of God. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the blood is valued by God. I, I intellectually struggled with this part, and I mistaught it. I mistaught it in this house. I didn't know better. I was guilty of what Stephen Furtick did, and I didn't know till two weeks ago that I'd ever did it. So my motive was good. I said, if you were to go buy a house, 
and the house was worth $100,000, you would never pay $300,000 for the house. So the house value is determined by what you're willing to pay for it. That's natural business acumen, understanding. I applied it to the death of Jesus Christ, and I said, God must think you as valuable as Christ to pay for you that way. And in my natural understanding, that made sense. And I ask you to forgive me for that in my ignorance. The emphasis of Scripture says you are not redeemed with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The issue was not my value. The issue is that the value of the innocent lamb was so incomprehensible that everyone that's ever been born and died or alive today, that death could be remission of the world's sin. It's not that I was valuable at all. It's that he was so valuable and so kind. You can't have my gospel. You ain't, can't have it. You can't touch it because it's gave me new life. It's gave me hope. It set my feet upon a rock. It's, I'm settled. I love that it's ringing in my ears this morning. It is finished. Why would I rewrite a story that's finished? Got a song for you. You ready? Y'all like that one last week? Some of y'all, y'all aren't even Pentecostal and you forgot. Some of y'all like, don't show that video. My, my folks would fall out if they saw me. Stand up. Come on. Stand up. Got a song cued for you. Now, this is under the Lord. The goal is not to get you riled, but you can't not express yourself after today. So would you play our video for us, guys? I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight It was my turn Till I made I was breathing but not Alive. All my failures I tried to hide It was my dream yeah. Till I made You called my name
This is my story. This is your story. Come on, listen. I needed rescue. My sin was heavy. The chains break at the waiting of glory. I needed shelter. I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of heaven. Where I was broken, you were my healing. Now your love is the air that I'm breathing. I have a future, my eyes are open. Cause when you call my name, shut it. I ran out of that grave. Out of the darkness, into your Lord, it is our anchor. Today we confess our anchor is in you. It is in the hope and the blood of Jesus. God, that your love was not magnified. Your love was satisfied. God, and your, the cross redeems broken man. That those who were dead are now alive and living full of life and full of your vigor because of your work. Lord, send us the way this week, full of life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you, church.